The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Friday, February the 8th, and you're very welcome to this edition of the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Nobody wants to return to the borders of the past, so we will make it a priority to deliver a practical solution as soon as we can. It's been over two years now since British Prime Minister Theresa May set a course for Brexit that includes Britain exiting the European single market and the customs union. As we're now all painfully aware, it was a decision with huge implications for Ireland, for our foreign trade, for our border communities, and some say for the peace process. Our public affairs editor, Simon Carswell, has been looking at what Brexit will mean for people in different walks of life on this island. Earlier this week, I talked to him about what he's found. So, Simon, you've had this sort of Brexit watching brief or maybe kind of investigative brief over the last year or so. What is your brief? Well, the focus is very much on the second track of two tracks that we're looking at with Brexit. If you think of the political track, which is a very confusing track right now, and so much uncertainty surrounding it. So we took a view about six months ago uh, that we really need to start telling the story of how Brexit is going to affect people. So the people track. And it's kind of a bottom-up look at what Brexit might mean for Ireland, what Brexit might mean for East, West, North, South issues. One thing I notice again and again um, every day at the moment is that some of the sort of explainer content which you've been writing and we've been publishing on the website is is always in the most read lists. Like extraordinary for week for weeks on end, people are coming back, you know, to simple articles entitled things like "What is the backstop?" Well, exactly. We noticed that there was a real lack of understanding and even a lack of understanding as has been shown in the last two years in the British polit- political establishment as to what actually certain things mean and what certain things are, like the single market, how it works, the customs union, how it works, how a border would work post-Brexit if the UK sticks to its red lines of leaving both the customs union and single market. So there was a whole job of work, I felt, that hadn't been done more generally across the media, which is explaining what Brexit means. You know, that famous phrase, what does Brexit mean? Nobody really knows. So it's trying to figure out, well, what could it mean by looking at the various scenarios? So little things like what the backstop is. I mean, this phrase, this word that's been bandied around so much. Uh, and is used so often in, in the political context, I, I felt that people out there just don't understand what the backstop is. Where does it come from? It comes originally from, it's a cricket term, uh, and it's originally the, uh, I suppose, an insurance policy on the cricket pitch. If you're the fielding team, you have the wicketkeeper standing behind the stumps who catches the ball from the bowler. If the batter hits the ball, it goes for a run. But if the batter were to hit the ball past the wicketkeeper and the wicketkeeper misses it, the backstop comes in and that's where you have the backstop at the boundary to prevent the batting team from scoring a run. So it's to prevent the worst outcome, the worst possible outcome on the cricket pitch and likewise the Brexit backstop. is There is no backstop in cricket anymore, although I'm told there is one in baseball. Well, in professional cricket, there's no backstop, but in youth and underage cricket, there is a backstop because... And Brexiteers would love this, that modern technology in the professional game means that a backstop is redundant, just like the Brexiteers would hope that there's technological solutions along the border to uh, replace the backstop and get rid of it. Now, the reason the backstop is there, um, all sides agree, is because of the British border in Ireland, but what, what people in Britain seem to call the Irish border still. And the question of the potential 
damage to the peace process and the impact on the island of Ireland of reinstating a hard border of some sort has been at the core of all this. And you've been out talking to all kinds of different people. I think one of the most telling um, things you did was you talked to people who were victims of or in some way involved in a in a terrible bombing that happened in 1972 on the border. Well, there had been so much uh, said about how customs posts along the border become targets. If there are two different regulatory systems covering trade between two jurisdictions, then you require at that frontier a checking system. And during the early days of the Troubles, that checking system involved custom posts with customs officials. That became a target of Republicans in along the border region because it was regarded as uh, the British establishment, a, a, a kind of tangible uh, manifestation of the border in Ireland. And therefore, it was regarded as a target. So a building that represents what is a transactional issue around trade becoming a political target by Republicans. And so what I thought would be worth doing is looking back at all the attacks that took place at customs posts during the Troubles. And I thought it'd be worth uh, looking at which was the worst one, the one with the most fatalities. And one that I discovered was the attack on the Newry Customs Clearance Centre in August of 1972, where nine people were killed. My father drove a lorry, coal lorry for MJ O'Rourke's End on Dog. He was doing the run that morning for somebody that was going to a wedding. And he went in to get his book stamped in the customs. And they were on the way out when they met the IRA coming in with the bomb. Whether it went off prematurely or they let it drop, don't know. But there wasn't too much left of them. A team of IRA activists arrived at the border post and brought in a bomb. And this is very typical of the time that the IRA units would go in with a bomb, leave the bomb, and then they would leave and get order everyone out. Uh, and on that occasion, the bomb uh, detonated prematurely. We don't quite know why. Uh, they made they, One of the IRA men may have been spooked by the fact that a customs official sounded the alarm to get people out of the building. Anyway, the bomb exploded and it caused incredible devastation that day. And I spoke to the daughter of truck driver Jack McCann. His daughter Mary Casey spoke to him. It was the first time she spoke to uh, a newspaper and media outlet about what her family went through uh, just over 46 years ago. There was nine killed altogether, four customs and three IRA on the two lorry drivers. Will nobody ever come to me and said sorry? It's literally killed my mother that day as well. She was after getting over cancer. The cancer returned and within 14 months she was dead. They were very fearful of what Brexit would bring, bring back a return of a hard border. It could potentially bring back a return to violence because those customs post, post-Brexit would become a target again and would be regarded as another point of contact with the British establishments. Some people, I think, were critical of that article. There is a counter-argument, which is that people, that, that people who have an interest in a soft Brexit or no Brexit are scaremongering about some of these things and that it's unlikely to return to that. You know, level of awfulness. And that point was made by the DUP. The article got a much higher profile um, when we put it on the front page and it took up most of page three, all of page three, in fact, that uh, the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar held up the article at a European Council dinner uh, in mid-October to make the point that this is what happens when there are customs posts. Uh, I just thought it was a useful prop really to demonstrate to all of the European leaders the extent to which um, the concerns about uh, the re-emergence of a hard border uh, and the possibility of a return to violence um, are very real. You know, this was a front page of an Irish newspaper published yesterday. 
um, interviewing uh, family members, uh, the daughter of somebody who was killed at a customs post uh, on the border between Northern Ireland and Ireland back in the 1970s. And that is what used to happen when we had customs posts in Ireland. Uh, And I just wanted to make sure that um, there was no sense in the room that in any way uh, anybody in Ireland or in the Irish government was anyhow exaggerating uh, the real risk uh, of a return to violence in Ireland. He was accused of stirring fears that this is something that might happen. Now, all sides have said that there will be no hard border on the island of Ireland after Brexit. Yet nobody has come up with how we will avoid a hard border. This is the, the sticking point in the talks. This is why we're deadlocked, is there is no solution between the two sides, EU on one side, UK on the other, as to how you would avoid a hard border. So uh, I think the fears that people along the border have is that you would sleepwalk into a no deal. You would sleepwalk into a hard border. It would be the unintended consequence of both sides failing to reach an agreement. And I think the people that I've been speaking to consistently in the border area have said that these one day trips that British politicians take or pro-Brexit politicians take to the border region, they're regarded as acts of tokenism. They don't really wish to really understand the complications that come with the border. The fact that if you have any infrastructure, like a gantry over a road on the border, that that would be regarded as a target. That would be politically unacceptable to people who live there. So the concern I think that a lot of those people have is that if there is no solution, if both sides do not accept there is that there has to be a solution to avoid a hard border, then one might emerge purely because there are different rules rules on two different parts of the island. So one half of my house is on the Republic of Ireland and the other side of my house is on Northern Ireland. Which part of the island do you sleep on? <laughs> I live in I sleep in Northern Ireland, but my like living room would be in the Republic of Ireland. Okay. I have a picture here, might have Okay. Where's Northern Ireland and where's the Republic? So the northern would be here, and then the republic would be here. Your house is built now where this picture was taken. Yeah. So show me the shape of your house now where it might so be. So the living room and the kitchen would be here, and then the rest of my house would be here. And do you think there might have to be a customs man in your house then? Hope not. There's no room for him to sleep. <laughs> Some of the most illuminating um, stuff you've been doing over the last few months was talking to school kids in Northern Ireland from very different schools. Um, one from Cross Midway and another school, Methody, which is a well-known state school, I suppose, a Protestant school, essentially, isn't it? It is. Um, the trip to Cross Midway and South Armagh was, again, South Armagh is a very strongly nationalist, very strongly Republican area. And this was a, a primary school, kids 10 and 11 years old, who uh, you know, the, the peace agreement predates them by more than a decade. It was just interesting to hear their views and their concerns and more to hear what they actually had to say about the possibility of a return of a hard border. And one of the school kids in particular uh, lived right on the border. She, uh, Her bedroom was in Northern Ireland and her living room was in the Republic. She said she crossed the border twice on her way to school every day. And she was concerned, along with her friends, as to what Brexit might mean if there is no agreement between the grown-ups as they uh, they viewed them, that uh, they could see a return to things they hear their parents and aunts and uncles talking about, which is border crossings, which is soldiers on the streets. Those are the, the real fears of what might happen. And in the case of Methody, uh, it was talking to school kids, secondary school kids in their final year before they head off to university or elsewhere. I think it's very much that England 
isn't listening to Northern Irish people. Sometimes you have to put pragmatism before symbolism and face the fact that the Sinn Féin MPs, in order to advocate for their constituents, have to go over to Westminster and vote against a Brexit deal, which is not in the best interest of Northern Ireland. But then at the same time, I would say that the DUP, because of their own personal interests, was that they were obviously a pro-Brexit party. They're not recognising that the people of Northern Ireland voted to remain under the blanket, I would say, that the whole of the, the UK voted to leave. And Overwhelmingly, they were in support of, of, of remaining within the EU. Uh, six of the seven students were against Brexit. and indeed, now, some, Obviously, this isn't scientific, but it does reflect a, a fairly deep, profound split in unionism as well, doesn't it, between what you might call liberal, more middle-class unionism, which is what students in Methody are more likely to be, and some of the more hardcore support for the DUP. Absolutely. It's definitely more kind of softer unionism. If um, there are uh, Catholic and national students in Methody, it's a mixed school. Um, and there is certainly a, a view or a softening view uh, amongst unionists in Northern Ireland that their voice is not being heard. And the 56% of the people in Northern Ireland who voted remain in the Brexit round, referendum in 2016, their voices are not being reflected in Westminster because the DUP doesn't represent them as a hard Brexit party. Um, and the sense amongst some soft unionists now is, is that, well, if it is a hard Brexit, which they would regard as economically calamitous for Northern Ireland, then they have to bring forward this conversation that many people didn't want to have and that the Good Friday Agreement 20 years ago, 21 years ago, uh, really pushed out was that they may need to start thinking about the possibility of life being better economically and um, certainly in, so, in some in some regards socially by being in the United Ireland. And were they seriously considering that? They were because the worst case scenario, the alternative is a hard Brexit, which would mean um, all sorts of economic issues for them in Northern Ireland. But also what was interesting in talking to a lot of the what I would call soft national, soft unionists in Northern Ireland was that uh, that whole view of home rule being Rome rule is gone. The Republic of Ireland has become far more socially liberal, far more progressive. Uh, it embraced same-sex marriage. There was the abortion referendum last year. And the view was that any opposition that they might have had as unionists to remaining within the United Kingdom for social reasons was gone or going, or their view was softening as to how open they would be to United Ireland because really the values in the Republic of Ireland were becoming more and more reflective of what they valued. But also uh, the Good Friday Agreement allowed unionists, it was a fudge essentially, a political fudge. It allowed people to be British or Irish, but it also allowed them to be Northern Irish and British or Northern Irish and Irish. But also overarching all of that was they could be European Union citizens and I was surprised at the number of people I'd, I've spoken to in the last six months who who applied for Irish passports to retain that EU citizenship. They wanted to stay part of the European Union because it felt they felt it reflected their values. Um, and so that was, again, another reason why a lot of these soft unionists viewed the possibility of a United Ireland as being a much better place for them, certainly better than it might have been maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago. So the recurring theme... Uh, and we've heard it again from the Taoiseach in recent days is is we're not going to say anything about what this border is going to look like until we know what happens at, at, at the end of March. And there's kind of a, a point blank refusal, essentially, to to answer that question, which I think is politically understandable, you know, and they'll probably you know, they'll continue to try and hold that position for as long as possible. But for people who live in Cross McGlen or Ochnacloy or Cavan or Donegal, um, 
they must be having to start to think practically about things like where you do your shopping. I live in one country and I work in another. What's that going to mean for me? Are they are they getting to grips with that at all? I think they have certainly been thinking about it, but like most people, they're bamboozled as to what actually might happen. The irony of all of this is that while Dublin has said it will not come to any bilateral or direct agreement with London, everything has to be done through the EU, the common travel area, the long-standing, decades-long arrangements that have allowed people to move freely between uh, Britain and Ireland, that that agreement is actually, there's an agreement been reached between London and Dublin, that they will put that in legislation, finally, uh, a single piece of legislation to protect the rights of people in Northern Ireland uh, and in Ireland and between the two islands, uh, so that uh, any concerns can be allayed. So there's a lot of confusion around what does Brexit mean? How far can the common travel area go? And I think that's a lot... That comes down to a lot to uh, the fact that the common travel area has had no kind of underlining, underpinning legal uh, basis uh, since it was created in the 20s and developed since then. So I think... And it wasn't adjusted to take account of the fact that we both entered the European Union. It just meandered along in the same way. It has. And it's, it, I mean, it predates the European Union sure. by some decades. So uh, in a way, a lot of the concerns that people along the border region and um, the common travel area and fixing that should solve a lot of those issues for the free movement of people. Brexit and the divorce deal and the future relationship agreement is largely to do with trade between the UK and the EU and Ireland being part of the UK, being part of the EU and the UK. So I think the common travel area will resolve a lot of issues for people in the border region. But again, the uncertainty around Brexit doesn't help. OK, but then in relation to business, you said a very interesting thing earlier, which is that um, small businesses can't afford to plan for Brexit and big businesses can't afford not to plan for Brexit. Could you elaborate on that a bit? Well, the problem with that is that large businesses and particularly public companies, they need to make contingency plans and they need to show shareholders, for example, what they're doing. And big businesses, in particular the supply chains that exist between the UK and Ireland because of the European single market, but also in the last 10 years since the financial crisis, it's made sense for businesses not to have distribution depots in Ireland where because of the ease with which you can bring trucks on and off ferries, the roll-row, the roll-on, roll-off traffic that exists between the UK and Ireland means fresh food can come and go, frozen food can come and go, just-in-time deliveries of perishable goods or short shelf-life goods all of the ease of travel between the UK and Ireland has meant that that is not that complicated to deal with. Post-Brexit, it becomes much trickier because you are dealing with potential checks at borders and that means long delays. So you have big supermarket chains like Tesco, uh, like Marks and Spencers, like Lidl and Aldi that need to be worried about how is my supply chain going to work. So a lot of work that has been done by big businesses is actually looking into what comes from where? How do we protect that supply chain? How do we protect those supplies in the, in the event of a hard Brexit? So, for example, you were in Dublin Port. Four from Liverpool, no one Within one hour, 13 kilometres of trucks unload in one hour. Not many people get to see inside Dublin Port, even though in many ways it's the kind of it's the narrow tube through which the entire Irish economy breathes, essentially. And there is work going on in Dublin Port to, to prepare for some of this, isn't there? There's huge work going on. And I think the way Dublin Port has approached it from a pragmatic point of view is probably how businesses are trying to approach it in very practical terms. Uh, Eamon O'Reilly, the, the chief executive of Dublin Port Company, said made a very clear decision. He said in December 2017, 
Theresa May has a red line set out in the Lancaster speech. The UK, she believes, is going to leave the single market, wants to leave the customs union. Eamon O'Reilly decided to take Theresa May at face value and to plan that way. So so what they've done is, well, that means border checks. 200,000 units already non-EU traffic. Come Brexit, 200,000 takes a step change up to a million. So it's not a step into the unknown. It's a great big increase, but it's not a step into the unknown. Things will not move as quickly, but they will continue to move. Uh, So they've set up a system of primary inspections initially and then secondary inspections. So in very broad terms, the number of containers that are going to be checked at Dublin Port goes from 200,000 or that that these are containers that require customs clearance goes to a million. So that's a huge leap that needs to be checked. And about half of that increase comes in on trucks. And as you say, Dublin Port is, it's what's regarded as the gateway to the economy. Almost 90% of all trucks in and off the island, including Northern Ireland, come through Dublin Port, about a million units a year. So it's a huge volume of traffic. So It takes very little disruption for that just all to back up horribly. Well, if you think about it, in one hour in uh, on a typical morning in Dublin Port, four ferries arrive from the UK and they spill, uh, spilling off those ferries is, is the equivalent of 13 kilometres of uh, of trucks coming off. That's what 13 lane kilometres of space are on those ferries that come in. So it's a huge volume of traffic that comes into Dublin Port every morning. And that's just one wave of ferries in a day. So it, it's a huge logistical operation to get those trucks off those ferries through customs checks. Right now, they just go off the ferries and half them go on through the port tunnel and onto the M50 and out to distribution centres and factory premises out before rush hour in, in uh, hits Dublin and hits the M50. So what are the prospects that we might see the kind of chaos that we've seen people think may happen around Dover and in southern England well, the big, uh, if there's a, if there's a uh, collapse Brexit? Well, the big difference between Dover and Dublin is Dover is essentially um, a bridge point. It's a tiny postage stamp of space at the foot of the White Cliffs there. Uh, so really, if you were to, and I spent a good bit of time in Dover watching the ferries come and go, literally trucks come down into the port and literally onto the ferries. They don't really wait very long. And there are multiple ferries every hour. So Dover doesn't really have the space to allow traffic jams. There's nowhere for trucks to sit in Dover, certainly not the volume of trucks, but 10,000 trucks go through Dover uh, on an average day. So that's a huge volume of traffic and that's why they're doing all these contingency plans by looking at backing up trucks um, both on the M20 down to Dover or on an airfield near. So Dublin Port doesn't have that uh, problem that Dover has. Dublin Port is on a much bigger plot of land. But that doesn't mean that it, it will be immune from uh, from traffic jams or, or checks. Now, Dublin Port has said it's happy that it can carry out the checks to stop uh, traffic backing up onto ferries or backing, preventing ferries from coming in or indeed it coming into the port that it won't have a backup of traffic going into Dublin Port Tunnel, for example. So their their view is, is that the state authorities and state agencies really should only do the checks that they're capable of doing, that they, they have the, the resources to do and nothing more. And we've heard the revenue commissioners appear before uh, Roctus committees and most recently at the finance committee where we had Niall Cody say that his intention is that revenue will do 2% of physical checks on all on all trucks. And so that's very small. It's a very small number, but it's as it stands now, everything that comes into the country from outside the European is uh, European Union is checked for customs at Dublin Port, and at the moment, on average, two percent uh, of containers coming in are physically checked. Will we will we be able to distinguish between um, 
trucks uh, either coming from, either leaving Ireland and going to Europe or coming from Europe to Ireland and simply using the UK as a land bridge. In well, other words, its goods are being exported or are being um, transported from one EU country to another. And this is where it gets extremely complicated. In a hard Brexit, trucks typically, uh, right now they would go to and from Europe, but they might, to make money, do drop-offs in the UK. Um, a lot of hauliers uh, would uh, would do groupage business, which is bits and pieces of everything, little bits and pieces from different pickups, uh, all in the back of one load, which really complicates things. From in, in the event of a, a hard Brexit and after Brexit, what would happen is, is uh, are they going to transit through the UK or are they going to stop in the UK? Now, the UK has signed up to a common convention on transit. And what that means is basically you seal a container in the back of the truck as it passes through the UK, uh, it's checked that it's sealed going in, it's checked that it's sealed going out. So uh, that's a way of fast-tracking traffic to use the UK as a land bridge to try and get goods. And that would mean that Irish truckers Europe. could go sailing past their their UK colleagues uh, as they were queuing up to get the, the papers to get through Dover. And having travelled with a couple of truckers, that's their concern, is, is that if Irish truckers have this fast-track route through the UK and the UK truckers are in long traffic jams and tailbacks trying to cross ferries, over the English Channel to Europe are they going to cause problems for the Irish truckers are they going to be unhappy that they don't have that kind of privileged route and that's where you start getting into some very tricky uh, processes and procedures we've just come onto the M25 which is the route that goes around London and then in the M26 that takes us onto the M20 the M20 was called by one of the guys on the ferry last night the road to Europe post Brexit what's it going to be? Indeed, and one of the things you, you did was you've travelled with truckers on that, you know, on that long journey, 20, 24 hours. And like so many of these things, like the just-in-time delivery methods you mentioned earlier, um, all these systems are calibrated on being able to get from point A to point B within a certain length of time. And if that proves not to be possible, that has all kinds of impact. Well, the very real impact is is what that will mean is you will not get food um, to your supermarket shelves as quickly as you would hope. And that would mean you would have shorter shelf life for food. So your strawberries might only last three days as opposed to five days. But also the cost of your foods might increase because the cost of delivering them uh, may increase. Uh, Eamon O'Reilly's view at Dublin Port is that there may, if there are blockages on the land bridge, have to bring food in, more and more food in by containers rather than on the cheaper Roro, the lorries that come in. in and all of this would impact on prices. Obviously. This would impact on price and cause problems. And one of the things I found from the trucker trips was just how delicately balanced the supply routes are. There are specific windows that truck drivers have to meet to get there on time, to get deliveries into England. For example, a truck driver I went with from Northern Ireland through Dublin Port over to the north of England, he was we were transporting frozen chicken that was actually going to end up being breaded in another factory and was going to come back to Ireland to be sold in fast food restaurants. So it's an example of just how intertwined the Irish and UK markets are for the transport of goods and how complicated it is to try and unscramble that. It is unscrambling an egg. John, can you tell us where we are right now? Well, we're just heading out to fish in the middle of the Irish Sea. It's a good spot out here because the Irish Sea is a very, very strong tide, you know, and where the tide is, there always seems to be a good run of fish, you know, they run, they follow the feeding up and down with the tide. And how close are we to uh, British waters here? Well, five miles, in five miles we'll, we'll, we'll cross the median line, 
and we're in British waters then. That's that's where we do a lot of our fishing on the British side of the media. There are things that I, on, until I read your articles, I just wasn't aware of at all. I mean, one is the potentially dire impact on Irish fishing, for example. Well, it's huge. Uh, if uh, what are currently EU waters, uh, if they revert to British waters, it's going to deprive Irish fishermen of a huge uh, and very lucrative part of their catch. You're talking 60% of mackerel uh, that Irish fishermen bring in are currently caught in what will be your uh, UK waters and 40% of prawns. Overall, about a third of the Irish fishing catch currently comes from UK waters. And what that means is post-Brexit, if there is a hard Brexit and no agreement between the EU and the UK on access to fishing waters, you're going to see Irish fishing trawlers having to fish much uh, narrower, much more confined areas to fish, which means fishing out in potentially more dangerous waters as well along the south, southwest coast, west coast. Uh, they're not going to be able to fish in the Irish Sea where they would typically fish uh, during the winter months. It might be a little bit safer. Um, and it means uh, longer periods of time uh, away at sea. The other issue is is that if you're depriving EU fleet, fishing fleets uh, of these access to UK waters, you're going to bring more European fleets into Irish waters. Uh, so you're going to see more Spanish and more French and Belgian fishing fleets coming into Irish waters because they can't access, like the Irish fishing trawlers can't access UK waters. Okay, well, if we haven't scared our listeners enough already, just give me the full whammy here. If on the 29th of March, the United Kingdom exits the European Union without a deal. What are the economic effects? What are the effects on our trading position as a country? What are the effects on our economy? And what happens at the border? The government is reluctant to say what happens, but what happens there too? Well, the most real consequence of a hard border are the jobs lost. Uh, And various figures have been put out, the most recent ones by the Department of Finance, who has said that you're looking at 55,000 job losses. Uh, there will still be job growth in the economy, but it won't nearly be as strong as it, ha- would, as it would be without a hard Brexit. You're looking at a contraction in the economy of in the order of about 4 4.5% in the medium term, up to around 2023 is what the, is what the government and part, is. There are parts of the economy that would be affected worse than others. Well, this is where the job losses fall. And the big problem is, is that if you look at exports to the UK, exports at the moment, about 15 billion euro worth of exports, about about a tenth of our exports out of the country. Now, that might not sound like a big amount, but when you're in a particular industry like agri-food, which relies very heavily on the UK market, half of all beef exports go to the UK. If you shut off the UK market to Irish beef farmers, you're talking about wipeout. And Minister for Agriculture, Mike Creed, has warned the government at Cabinet that that's what will happen in the event of a hard Brexit. The IFA, Irish Farmers Association, is saying you're looking at in the order of about 70,000 beef farmers being put out of business. So the impact on the agri-food sector is severe. 80% of Irish milk ends up in the UK market. So farming, farming will be the worst sector hit. Uh, And I think a large proportion of those job losses will fall on that sector. You're going to see small exporters being affected in the medium, short to medium term by a hard Brexit because, like I said, small companies haven't been able to, can't afford to prepare. So they're going to take a big hit if there is a hard Brexit. Am I right in saying then that the Googles and the Facebooks and the big pharmaceuticals are going to be less affected? Well, they are less affected. Uh, pharma will be affected in some way, but a lot, of the, a lot of the big pharma companies have been contingency planning a lot of the scenarios that would come with a hard Brexit. So they would be looking at alternate routes. There are just-in-time issue delivery issues for pharmaceuticals. For example, pharmaceuticals, 
need to be delivered uh, in refrigerated containers. They need to maintain a certain temperature as they travel. So there are issues for those, but a lot of them will be looking at, you're going to see more direct ferries to Europe, the likes of Dublin Zeebrugge, Dublin Antwerp, Dublin Rotterdam, those uh, ferry services being used more heavily or even new routes. We've seen a couple already. And that, that would be slower though, wouldn't it? It would be much slower. You're talking, when you go the land bridge, you're talking up, up to about 20 hours, you can get your goods to businesses in continental Europe in around 20 hours, which is an extraordinarily fast turnaround to get uh, goods to export markets. Direct, you're talking upwards of 20 to 40 hours. You can get to uh, Dublin to Cherbourg in less than 20 hours, but then there's more driving to be done. Uh, you're talking 40 to 60 hours in some of the European ports. So you really start tinkering hugely with supply chain routes, with the cost of transporting goods, cost of transporting food, flowers, fresh produce. It's very, very complex, uh, the change that will have to take place. And it's inevitable that if there is a hard Brexit and you can't use the land bridge as much as you have been, then haulage businesses will have to change. They may not be able to bring food across the land bridge. Or as I say, if they do, you're going to have shorter shelf lives. How likely do you think that is to happen now? Well, I would have said six months ago it was highly unlikely because of how catastrophic it would be and how damaging it would be economically. And this is what you hear more and more from businesses is that as we get closer to Brexit Day, there are still a large number of businesses saying this is crazy. There has to be an agreement. Politicians can't let this happen. Uh, as recently as last week, you had Monaghan Mushrooms, which is the largest uh, mushroom producer in Europe, saying Britain imports 50% of its food. Do you really think British politicians will allow their supermarket shelves to remain empty in the event of a hard Brexit? They just couldn't do it. Common sense has to prevail. The problem is, is that there is no agreement a majority uh, support for a solution to Brexit at the moment in Parliament. So all of these worst-case scenarios not only have to be planned for by business, by traders, by people, but they have to be seriously considered and you have to cost these things. So I think that as they get closer to, and um, it's 50-odd days now to Brexit, that businesses have to take this extremely seriously, the risk of a hard Brexit. Many businesses I spoke to feel that it just doesn't make sense that there would be a hard Brexit, but you do have a minority of business saying, I think there will be a hard Brexit and the UK will negotiate their way back in on more favourable terms is what you often hear. But the big After a period of absolute chaos. After a period of absolute chaos, yeah. And you have now the Revenue Commissioner saying, sending out letters to tens of thousands of small and medium-sized businesses you need to take this seriously because there could be a hard Brexit. It's becoming more and more real uh, a possibility. Simon, thanks very much for coming in today. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to Simon. Thanks also to our producer, Declan Conlon. Remember, you can find all our podcasts on irishtimes.com slash podcasts. You can mail me at hlinhan at irishtimes.com or you can usually find me on Twitter. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening.